Is this the first official week of fall? There we go. That's good. Wouldn't know it necessarily. That's good. Oh, welcome to fall 2018. You made it. And you're like, where did the summer go? And you'll blink your eyes and it'll be Christmas. That's cool. Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, good morning. My name is Carrie. I'm the lead pastor of the Awakening Church, and welcome to our family. We're glad that you're here, whether you're new or old. We are going to continue a series this morning that we started a couple weeks ago called The Crossing. And it's out of Joshua 1 through 4, and it's uh, the story of the Israelites crossing the uh, Jordan River. And we're applying it to our own life as we look to cross uh, maybe some Jordans, some personal Jordan rivers in our own life into the promised land of what God's calling you to. And also for us as a church family, as we look at uh, moving from this location to another location by God's grace to uh, Marietta Crossings, which is over on the 215. And sometime this fall, this is going to happen, but we're still not totally sure when. And uh, we hit another little glitch this week with some things that are needed by the city. And we're like, all right, we'll take time and we'll track those down. But um, we will have opening Sunday after we cross from here to there sometime this fall, now that we're here in the fall of 2018. All right? Now, if you remember last week, we were in Joshua 2, and we talked about the story of Rahab, uh, prostitute Rahab, who ended up saving um, the spies from um, the uh, people tracking them down in her hometown there of Jericho. And we gave reference that God is able to reach all kinds of people, no matter what our backgrounds are, no matter how far we are from God, what situation we're at in life, whether we've been in church, out of church, whether we have interest in God or not, God is interested in changing and transforming every single person's life, and that includes you in these great cloth chairs here this morning. You are reached by God. You are not outside of his realm. And... Also, no one you currently know or will know is outside the reach of God to be able to bring salvation or redemption. No matter how they've fallen, no matter how indifferent they are, no matter how uh, they've tracked a spiritual history in their life, God is able to change and transform every single person you know. And one of the encouragements we gave last week as we closed in Joshua 2 with the story of Rahab was for you to um, prayerfully consider in these weeks this fall, who out of your oikos, which stands for house or household, extended network of relationships, you could invite for our opening day when we cross from this side, the east side of the Jordan, to the west side of the Jordan. And so I put the diagram back up here for you again. And I've referenced this, as, referenced this as the invite five for opening day. Who are you praying for in your oikos, your household, to be saved? Who are you praying that God would reach out to and bring redemption to? If you don't have five, pray that God would start to bring you across five individuals. And you're going to extend invitations to those five individuals. Because I tell you what, when it comes to people knowing God and having an interest in the faith, it comes through the modeling of people who are walking with God in a genuine way, bumps, bruises, and alls, and people who are loved by individuals. It doesn't necessarily come, though it can, from marketing and signs and social media. All that can be a part of when we cross from here to there. But it's literally going to be us 
mobilized through the promptings of the Holy Spirit to pray for individuals, to extend the invitations, and have those five come and be seated with you on chairs. Now you may say, well, I don't know if I have five, and then I don't know if any of those five will come. That's not for you to worry about. Our concern is for you to take that initiative. And I sincerely, as your pastor, lay that before all of us this week. My, um, I don't think my wife's in here this morning. She's over in children's ministry leading it. But Melissa this week started, and um, now you're going to tell her when you go see her, when you pick up your kids, and she'll say, you told everybody. But um, this week she started a women's Bible study for mothers of special needs kids that she had connected with through... I don't know, some of the social media, and uh, there's 16 women that are going to be meeting in the new building um, that have special needs kids, and they're challenged in life. Some have a spiritual background, some don't. And, um, and, you know, I'm just proud of her because that's a lot to take on, that initiative, those relationships. Who are we stepping out with to try to build relationships with that we could be able to influence and um lead to God or encourage in the faith if they are already walking with God. So your invite five, you got it? All right. Now, this is what I want to start off with this morning. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago, I invited you to consider maybe being a part of a uh, one-day seminar that Andy Stanley, who is from Atlanta, Georgia, was running over in Irvine. He recently came out, uh, actually just in the last couple of weeks, with this book called Irresistible. And um, the top of the um, book says this, Once upon a time, there existed a version of our faith that was irresistible. Irresistible. Attracted all kinds of people. Once upon a time. And so his book, Irresistible, is reclaiming the new that Jesus unleashed for the world. This morning... He had an article, an opinion article in Fox News, and he was answering this question, five reasons people leave the church. Now, maybe you might be spot on with some of his five reasons. I'm going to give you those five reasons, but I'm going to open it up right now for just a few moments, because if we are about inviting people and we're moving from one side of the Jordan to the other side to move people into the promised land, into relationship with God then we're not necessarily just inviting people to church. We are inviting them into the kingdom of God, and we're going to be looking at that today. But we live in a culture today that is uh, becoming disenchanted with church going. In fact, uh, in the article this morning, Andy Stanley says this, I've talked to, listened to, and read interviews, blogs, and books by dozens of folks who've left the Christian faith. I've yet to hear a story from anyone who abandoned Christianity based on anything directly related to Christianity at least the original version anyway. The decline of Christianity in America, the popularity of the new atheists, the metric rise of the nons, quote-unquote nons, underscores something that's been true for generations but didn't matter much until now. Many expressions of Christianity are fatally flawed. Many people see Christianity as anti-intellectual, overly simplistic, and easily discredited. For decades, college professors with biases against religion, have found Christian freshmen easy targets. Much of what makes Christianity in America so resistible to those outside the faith are those things we should have been resisting all along. While many of us have been working hard to make church more interesting, 
it turns out that fewer people are actually interested. What are the five reasons people leave the church? We'll see if you can hit any of them that he picks out. Right down here, Mike. Politics within the church. Politics within the church? Heather? Being judgmental, the church people are judgmental. Okay. Other reasons, people leave the church. Yes. Hypocrisy. The Christians don't uh, walk what they talk, right? Not feeling connected. There's no relational connection within the church. Other reasons, people leave the church. I guess you know, it's the question, leave the church, maybe not have interest in the church to begin with, but a lot of times leaving, that's what they're referring to as the nons. People say, well, I'm, I'm just a, a non-person anymore. Other reasons, people leave the church. Lucy. Okay. All right. So uh, people change their seasons of life. It becomes awkward. And then there's some challenges relationship-wise, some of the authenticity, transparency thing, like somebody going through a divorce. Good. A couple more reasons people <laughs> Now, here's the deal. This is put out there in a generic form, but it could actually be your reason you left the church or you're considering leaving the church right now. And I'm not talking about just this church. I'm talking about the church as we know it today in America. Any other suggestions? Reasons people leave the church, Zach? I'd rather be home watching football. Rather be home watching football. <laughs> Man, I appreciate guys being real and sincere. That's good. Mike in the back. Okay, the work, a church functions just like the world. There's no difference. So, hey, I've got my places to hang out. So why would there be others? Joe? Suffering just proves God that because their life doesn't get better when they come here. All right. The point I was better off doing what I wanted. Good, good. Suffering disproves uh, God, so it's not necessarily something that uh, is true and real. I give a couple more people reasons people leave church. All right. All right. Gossip and needing revival, renewal in their life, but. It's not there. In other words, there's no fire in the church. That's great. Good, Adrian. Yes? Okay. All right, so tribulation and troubles in life, and they just grow weary and just can't keep on pursuing it. Yeah. Good. Inability of people within the church to articulate why they believe in their faith issues. Those are good. It's a fun question, isn't it? Why? Because you're all in church today. So you must be here for some reason. Maybe you've been away from church. You thought you'd check it back out. And here we are trying to give the encouragement to do the invite five. And you're going, I don't know. I have some people that don't go to church, but... Jaw drop, uh, I don't think they're interested. Or you would expect maybe somebody to reject the invitation. So it's a real world that we live in. 
Now, I live in it all the time, right? Because I'm one of the pastors. And it's like, well, why don't people show up, right? What are they doing today? Football games? Come on, what's the deal, right? But it's a very sincere question because it's really not the issue of church. It's the issue of people pursuing a relationship with God, not pursuing spirituality. There's a lot of that pursuit out there, but really pursuing the one true God and what he desires to do in people's lives. Because we believe that people, all people, the people you're going to invite and the people you're working with tomorrow, all people are made in the image of God. And when we sing a song like we just sang about the grace of God and what Jesus did on the cross, Jesus died for all people. He wants to be in relationship with them. So this is vitally important. Do we really believe what we say we believe? And why are people not interested in being in a relationship with God when he created them in his image? You can spend your days building your portfolio, making ends meet, trying to gain prominence in a particular place and role. And years pass, families grow up, our bodies age. And when all's said and done, we have to ask ourselves, what's all this about in this world? And what this is about in this world, the scripture says that we are work, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. God is desirous of a people of his very own, eager to do what is good, a people in relationship with him. That's what it's about. But why in America is there this drift? So here's Andy Stanley's five. You ready? Actually, sort of a couple of them were hit on, so congrats to you if you were one of these. He lists these five. Now, this first one I think will take you by surprise, and I think Andy's taken some hits on this. We tell people that the Bible is the basis of Christianity. In fact, in reference to some of this, he's pulled back some on always teaching, though it's true, what the Bible says is true. He doesn't always say, well, the Bible says, because he says this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How many saying that growing up, right? It's a line that many who grow up in the church know by heart, and it reflects a problem in modern American Christianity. Many of us believe that the Bible is the foundation of our religion. I recently read a blog post by a former worship leader who left the faith after she read a book called Proving Contradictions in the Bible. Apparently, she grew up believing the foundation of our faith is a non-contradicting book. It's not. Jesus is. When our faith stands on anything other than Christ, we put ourselves and others in a position to fall. Now, apparent contradictions in the scriptures can be figured out and sought out, and there is no uh, contradiction in the scriptures once, of, of significance once you pursue it. There might be changes from one manuscript to another, a dot and an I, cross and a T, that kind of thing. But if we say that our Christian faith is based upon the Bible and you're in a culture that's highly skeptical of the Bible and doesn't take the time to address apparent contradictions that they've been told, and then like you go to college or university and the professors just hammer the freshman Christians where you really believe that stuff, then people easily chuck it. If your Christian faith is not based upon Christ. And we need to be cautious of that. His, number, his second one is this. They believe suffering disproves the existence of God. And Joe nailed on that one. 
Renowned New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman says he lost his faith and embraced atheism because of suffering in the world, and he's not the only one. But the foundation of our faith is not a world without suffering. Pain and suffering don't disprove the existence of God. It only disproves the existence of a God who doesn't allow pain and suffering. Whose God is that? Not ours. Our God promised there would be suffering until he makes all things new when he returns and establishes his kingdom. Number three, they had a bad church experience. Most bad church experiences are the result of somebody prioritizing a view over you, something Jesus never did and instructed us not to do either. Self-righteousness and legalism are leftovers of the Old Testament laws, which Jesus replaced through his death on the cross. Relationships are messy and complicated, but if our actions are rooted in Jesus' commands to love one another, we can prevent many of the experiences that lead people away from his body. And a couple, three of you made mention of that, the whole thing of going through tough life seasons, the connectedness, it's not what I thought, the relationships. It's crucial that we do what Jesus said, which is to love one another. He said what in Scripture? By this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Spot on, and he understood that with the movement he created. Number four was this in his article this morning. We're bad at making people feel welcome. This is the good one for all of us in this church as we continue to try to reach out. It wasn't just his message that made people irresistible. It was Jesus himself. People who were nothing like him liked him. Do I need to say that again? People who were nothing like him liked him. Jesus attracted all kinds of people. Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. Jesus invited unbelieving, unbelieving, misbehaving, troublemaking men and women to follow him and embrace something new, and they accepted his invitation. As followers of Jesus, we should be known as people who like people who are nothing like us. When we invite unbelieving, misbehaving troublemakers to join us, they should be intrigued, if not inclined, to accept our invitation. So that's four. Four reasons that people left the church. His reason number five is what I want to branch off of as we jump in to talk about the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan. And it's this. We made Ecclesia the Greek word, the church, a building. This word, ecclesia, occurs over a hundred times probably in the scriptures. And it's translated the church. The church, though, is a term that comes from the German language. And when we hear the term church today, we often think in terms of a building or a service like this. I'm going to church, right? So why are people leaving the church? Then they're thinking, I'm leaving the building. I'm leaving leaving, or I set aside doing a Sunday morning worship experience. But in Scripture, there's actually one place where the word ecclesia uh, is not translated that way, and it's translated as an assembly of people or a mass of people, a movement of people that were in an uproar and a problem. Because, see, the word ecclesia is actually a secular word and should not have been adapted into the language as some sacred term. Because ecclesia is defined as a gathering or a movement of people. 
an assembly of people. And you could have that assembly at a football game, at a concert, at a civic organization, right? At a corporate uh, uh, lunch gathering. The word ecclesia has to do with people, groups of people, large groups of people. And sometimes people that had something in common and they, and they were moving towards a certain direction. And so scripturally, this word ecclesia was then translated through the years to be stamped and identified as quote-unquote church. And what we're inviting people into is not into a building. We're not inviting them into a service of worship. We're inviting them into a people group. And the people group that we're inviting people into is the people group that are Christ followers, people that are seekers of God. And that group of people historically through all generations has really been a rather exciting group to be a part of. Yes, there are sufferings and trials and temptations that have existed within that group. But when you're a part of something that's, that's a movement that's exciting, then it's attracting like attracts like. Everybody wants to be on in on the new uh, movement kind of idea. And so Andy Stanley, in writing this book, Irresistible, helps you and I redefine and rethink through what it means to be a part of the church. So the invite five for opening day, you're not inviting them to see the new digs. Is that like an old term, digs? It's an old term. Thank you, Joe. Some of you remember that term. The new new space, all right? Or the new pad, that's an old term, right? Yeah. What's a new term? The spot? The spot? All right. The vibe. So we get to invite people to the new spot to the new vibe. Thank you very much. That's why I have young people. Keep me going. Was there another term I missed? Anyway. And that's all cool. And that'll be an exciting day if we can get our city permits. But it's much grander and bigger than that. So please don't ever fall into the temptation as we stand on the east side of the Jordan moving to the west to think, oh, we're just pumped about getting people into the church or building a number on a Sunday. No, we are inviting people to be a part of the ecclesia, the assembly, the movement of God Almighty, followers of Jesus Christ, who will reign supreme with him through all of eternity. And we are inviting people into something much grander and bigger. I personally believe one of the key reasons that people leave the church is not because necessarily sometimes we are simplistic. Sometimes we don't reach out intellectually. I spent six hours in the last two weeks trying to talk to someone who was formerly an agnostic that was now trying to grind the grips of the faith, and the person's very intelligent. And so we were dialoguing on all kinds of different stuff in the past, and I was trying to create for him, capture for him, a heart of the grandeur and the wonder of God. Because I believe it's not just that we make it too simplistic, we're not intellectually challenging or intellectually credible. I think we paint too small of a story of what's going on. In fact, this young man I was speaking with this week, he says, you know, I came to find that my pride and my arrogance was keeping me from belief. And so he started to drop that. And as he started to drop that, he tried to comprehend what God was doing. And he says, I think what God's doing in this world is it's a big experiment. And I said, well, experiment is one word I suppose you could try to work with. But experiment sounds like God doesn't know what's going to happen on the other side, right? I said, how about the word epic? 
God has a big epic that's going on, and we're inviting people into that. In fact, I find this true with students. I remember when I was in student ministry a lot of times that we put Christianity so low on the shelf and try to make it a little bit of do's and don'ts, stay clear from those drugs and these kinds of don'ts, and, but we don't paint the grandeur of what God's doing. My heart was filled when I understood that the kingdom of God came through Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God is permeating the world today through our lives of challenging people to, to, to live a life under the reign of Christ. And Christ is coming again someday to establish this perfect world. When I started to get my heart filled with the epic of the kingdom of God and that I am a part of it and I can invite other people a part of it, then I started letting the things of this earth go by the wayside real fast because I want that. And I think that's one of the challenges we have in our invitation, not only for people to come to church, but our invitation for people to come into the kingdom of God, for people to cross the Jordan River and enter the promised land, is that we have too small of a story going on. And what our world is hungering for is not politics of this group or that group and divisiveness of this or that or what team am I following. They're hungering for something grander and God's brought that through his kingdom and so the story we step back into again today and because I have some more weeks now until we actually have to do our crossing I can slow down and sort of sort of pull this thing apart a little bit in the first part of Joshua as we look at this people this is a story that's a story within the greater story of God's epic of him taking a people that he's called to himself and moving them to a place of prominence, the promised land, so that they could what? Be self-indulged in their own lifestyles? No, so that they could become a blessing for all people. People blessed to be a blessing as we've talked about. So thank you, Andy Stanley, for getting us sharpened. And I haven't read his book yet, but I think I might get his book, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. So our story is about the people who left Egypt, the Israelites, were in slavery. God called Moses. The plagues came. Moses finally was able to take the Israelites out of Egypt for a little while. And then Pharaoh and the Egyptians began to chase them. And we have the story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea where God parted the waters. They walked through on dry ground. When the Israelites, the million some that went across the Red Sea, they got to the other side. God closed up the waters, drowned Pharaoh's army, and they were never again bothered by Pharaoh. They went into a journey that was heading them towards the promised land. They reached Kadesh Barnea, and they got spooked. They got scared. The spies said, yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but only two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said that we could take the land. All the other people doubted, and God sent them wandering in the wilderness of the desert for how many years? Forty years. Why forty? Because that whole generation needed to die off. The kids that were born, the next generation that came up, God was going to take them into the promised land, and so Moses led them up to the east side of the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea, real geography that exists today. You can go there. Jordan, the country of Jordan is on the east side, and Israel is on the uh, west side of the Jordan River. Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, but he was able to see it from a high mountain peak, and then he died. And after he died, they needed a new leader, and so Joshua was picked by God. 
and Joshua began to lead these people. They were going to cross the Jordan in God's time. But what stood before them was the need for another miracle. Million to two million Israelites camped on the east side of the Jordan for a good period of time. They were still eating the manna from heaven that came down. They were trying to still encourage one another. People uh, were raising their families, having babies. They were waiting on God to move. And as we step into Joshua chapter 1, we find that God's ready to get them on the move through Joshua and through the call that he had for them. This move, the crossing from the east to the west side of the Jordan, is significant in so many ways. I believe it's significant to some of you here today, and you may know who you are, because you've been camped down on the east side of the Jordan, just abiding time. But God has a promised land for you. He has something he wants to move you into, a new dimension of life, a new way of fulfilling your purpose in serving him. And he comes to you this morning and says, are you just going to stay camped on the east side or are you going to go to the west side of the Jordan? And you're like, duh, I would. But we got a problem, God. And you can list your problem why you can't move into that other dimension of life. And God says, well, I'm a God of miracles. And that's exactly what he did for the Israelites. So we pick it up in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. Now, what had happened? Remember in chapter 2 with Rahab last week, Joshua had sent two spies in to find out, hey, are we good to take over the land? The spies came back and said, the people are shaken in their boots. They're scared to death of us. God's going to give us the land. And Rahab, who helped us escape, who had faith in the one true God that we follow, she says already that God has given us this land. And so they came back with that news, and that news started to spread. Hey, they're back, they're back, they're back. And as they got back, it spread throughout the camp that this was maybe a possibility. Chapter 3, verse 2. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits before you and the Ark. Do not go near it. So here's the scene, the mass of people. Soldiers and, and aging men and, and, and women and uh, children and some who just had babies maybe that week, they are encouraged to move up from their encampment about six miles and come down to the river's edge of Jordan. And as they come down to the river's edge of Jordan, they are given some instructions. And one of those is when you see the Ark of the Covenant of God and the priest carrying it, you're to move out out from your positions and follow it, and you're supposed to give a distance between you and the Ark of the Covenant of about a half a mile. That's what it says there with 2,000 cubits. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? Because it plays a huge, not just symbol of prominence in this story, but what the Ark of the Covenant represents for you and I in our life as we seek to move out from our place of whether it's, it's uh, complacency or fear to what God has for us, the idea of what's embedded in the Ark of the Covenant is critical for us to understand. The Ark of the Covenant 
all right, was something God told the Israelites to create, which was basically a big wooden box. Think in terms of a, a smaller casket and put on poles to be carried by the priest. And this box, this wooden box, was, was glazed over with gold. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant were three things. One was the, the tablets, the Ten Commandments that God wrote into stone with Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. They were there in the Ark of the Covenant, representing God's truth, God's law, God's decrees and directions. Then there was a, was a jar, a pot of manna. And if you remember the story of the Israelites, how did they get fed in the desert? Well, God, every morning they woke up, there was manna on the ground. He also fed them with quail. And so there was, there was this uh, container of manna. You're like, is that going to spoil or what? I don't know. It was in the Ark of the Covenant. But it represented God's provision for everyday life. And then there was the rod of Aaron, which had budded. You could read the story. But the rod of Aaron was in the Ark of the Covenant, and it represented leadership. All right? So these three things were inside the Ark of the Covenant that was gold glazed, and that on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was a a plate of gold. It was probably not a part of the the covenant, but it was sitting on top. And then over top of it on each side were two cherubim, angels that were formed out of gold, and they were like this with their wings over top of them. And so they were looking down at the mercy seat, both of these two angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant, all right? And the mercy seat is where it was said that God spoke to Moses from. Now we have today... Alexa and Alexis and, and what Google Home and stuff. Sometimes I hear my daughter saying things. I'm like, who's she talking to? And she's talking to Google Home. And, and then as this voice comes back and says, okay, I've set your alarm at such and such, right? Well, this was no Alexis or Google Home. The mercy seat was the place where the voice of God spoke to Moses. Now, you've got the Ten Commandments, you've got the manna, you got the rod. You got God's decrees, God's provision, and God's authority and leadership represented. And then you got the very voice of God. This was a holy ark of the covenant. And some of you that are Indiana Jones fans of the Raiders of the Last Ark, you understand. You don't touch that. And there's all kinds of incredible stories about the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant meant the very presence of God Almighty, Yahweh. And that's what God used at that time to get them identified for it. So when he tells them, you guys hang out here for a little bit and you wait until the Ark of the Covenant goes in front of you and you wait for a half a mile and then you can follow, he was saying, I am the one leading you across the Jordan. So here's the deal for you in your life with your personal Jordan crossing. You can't cross it. You can't go from here to there in your lifestyle unless the presence of God Almighty goes before you. And God will lead the way. Friends, you have to know this related to our crossing from here to there. This was another one of those weeks where I went, are you kidding me? You need more drawings? You need another specialist? You need to hold off until someone else signs off on this deal? I was invited this week into a meeting. I was at the church working in the new building, and uh, I'm T-shirt, grubby, hat on. The owner of the building that we're leasing it from comes in. He says, hey, you want to go with me down to the roller skating rink? I'm like, what? I knew that there was a meeting down at the roller skating rink, which is a few places down from our current building that we're looking at. And he says, yeah, all the owners of all the buildings in Marietta Crossings are meeting. 
and we're forming the business association to make decisions. Well, I knew about this because this was part of our hang-up. There's no associations that's now reflected with that retail strip that can give a permission for us to have extra parking spaces. So I looked at him and said, you think this is a good idea? And he says, yeah. So I went down. We were late. We walk in on a meeting of 12 people sitting around a table, a lot of them in suits. I definitely was not in the gear. My get-up was not reflected them. <laughs> and they call me to the table, and I sit down, and I say, uh, yeah, I'm the pastor of this new church. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what are they going to be thinking? Are they going to be fearful? Hey, there's this church going to move in, all that kind of thing. But I pleaded our case. We needed them to sign off on 97 more parking spaces that we could use. And I'm waiting to hear back from them. But these are the kinds of things that happened in my week, which caused me to go, oh, really? Okay, God. Because you want to press out. You want to do something. But then God brings me back time and again, and maybe he has in your life, saying, this is not your deal, Carrie. God is leading this, and the presence of God Almighty goes before us as a people, whether it's as a church community and assembly to do God's purposes or you in your life, make sure the Ark of the Covenant is ahead of you. And why was it a half mile ahead? Maybe in part because of the holiness and the power of it, but because everybody could see the direction that they needed to go. That's why I like that phrase in verse 4, since you have never been this way before. Is God calling you somewhere that you've never been before? Maybe some changes in your life, maybe a career move, maybe a physical location. You've never been this way before. Oh my goodness, I'm scared. I'm uncertain. God understands it, but that's why you need him out ahead of you, because you've not been this way before, but God has. God knew the promised land. He created the promised land. He was gifting the promised land because God Almighty owned the promised land to these people. And then the critical verse that I really want us to camp on is this one. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Get ready. The word was consecrate. What does consecrate me. We'll come back to it. Verse 6, Joshua said to the priest, take up this Ark of the Covenant. And they did a crossing and pass across all the people on ahead of the people. So they took it up and they went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. So they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. And the reason because God wants us to know that his leadership is not embodied just within human beings, but today for us as a body of people, it's not me. Christ is the head of his church. Jesus is the one that's going to lead. Tell the priest who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Really? That's it? Yep. Put the thing up on the poles. Send the priest down ahead a half a mile in front of everybody as they're waiting and gawking and looking. And when you get there, put your feet in the water. Put your feet in the water. Now, if I was Joseph, I mean, if I was Joshua, I mean, and I was reflecting back on Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea, which we as a part of, I would probably spoke up to God at that moment and say, God, that doesn't sound like the way you did with Moses. 
they have to get in the water, and then you're going to do something, maybe? You just parted the Red Sea with Moses and staff. God, though he's doing something that's familiar here, he never does the familiar the same way twice. He has his ways of doing things, and he says, yeah, you go have them stand in the water. And I think that's significant. We'll carry on in verse 9. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gargashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each of the tribes. And that comes back around later as to why that's probably important. But here's the idea. He calls himself the Lord of all the earth. I think this is symbolic here because you might have a tendency to say, well, the promised land wasn't theirs. There's nine people grouping here that are listed out. Uh, here and elsewhere, that these were individuals or these bodies of people, that was their home. So why are you taking over their home? This land that you sit in right now used to be home to who? The Lucinio Indians. We have Indian reservations and other things and restitution trying to be made because we feel like we sort of took their land, right? And you could have that that same type of qualm with God in this. Who's God to do away with these groups of people, and give the Israelites the land. But he says, I'm the Lord of all the earth. Friends, know this. There is nothing that we truly own. God owns everything, even the property that our houses or our apartments sit on. As many of you know, I come from a large um, grain farm back in the Midwest. My brothers, my nephews, they farm uh, close to, I think, 8,000 acres. And when I grew up and I was a part of farming those acres, we were very mindful that our generation was farming them, but there were generations before us and there'll be generations after us. It was not our ground and we needed to steward it well. Environmentally and otherwise, but this fertile ground in the Midwest to be able to raise corn and soybeans and all as a part of that, this was not our property even though we had deed to it. It was God's. And so we practiced, I believe, in many ways, good stewardship of that. God is trying to acknowledge to them that he's the Lord of all the earth. And there's this acknowledgement for you and I as we seek God to bring change in our life, whatever it may be, that God is the Lord of all things. As soon as the priest then who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage while all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. Here's the deal behind this miracle. The Jordan wasn't this nice little, small little stream, which if you go to Israel today, it's like, wow, that wasn't been much. I could have walked across that on a few stones. It was at flood stage. It means that it overflowed its banks. Harvest season, rainy season, it's probably a mile wide, 3 to 12 feet deep. 
rushing at maybe 40 miles an hour. A lot of water. We saw what all can happen with a lot of water with the hurricane in, in the Carolinas the last couple weeks. So it's rushing, it's full, and it's not just the water, it's the thicket and the brush. In fact, it says this in Jeremiah about the thickets of the Jordan River. And so there's all kinds of crud and crap flowing down and getting caught in. And God says to these, I think, not maybe not fearful, fearful, but not so sure kind of Israelites, standing looking at this going, we're going from here to there across that kind of thing? Yeah, right. He says to them that they need to let his presence through the Ark of the Covenant step into the water. And so they stand back. The priests step into the water holding the Ark of the Covenant. Can you see him wade down in it? Now we think, oh, I put my little toe in. Boom. No. They waded out into the Jordan River. Can you picture maybe up to their waist going, what's going to happen here? And what God did in this miracle and he did it in, in a supernatural means, but through some natural means, a city up the river stream, 19 miles. He just sort of put a, put a dam there, and he blocked up all the water in a big heap. The only place that says a heap of water is when they cross the Red Sea. And so 19 miles up, and as they're out there waiting in it going, okay, okay, all of a sudden the water level starts to go down. And they're standing after a while on dry ground. It piled up in a heap a great distance away to a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah or the Dead Sea was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Whoa! Wouldn't you love to have been there? We are here today reflecting on this story of generations ago, but it's as true today as it was then. This wasn't a little path. Thank goodness it wasn't a little path because when you got a million some people need to cross through that little path, that would have taken an awful long time and those priests would have got tired of standing in the middle of the river. But from 19 miles up all the way down to the Red Sea, it just opened up as dry ground. And the mass of not only people, but herds and livestock and other provisions that they were carrying with them, they moved them across the Jordan River and they put their feet on the promised land. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, His presence stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood up. This Jordan River standing up on dry ground, you know, it's referenced in the psalm later on. I like how it says this, reflecting back on it. In Psalm 114, verse 3, the sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it the sea that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. That's why the presence of God 
he can move whatever obstacle stands in your way, Carrie Bowman, concerning the crossing. Whatever your personal Jordan River is, you need to look to the presence of the Lord. And this is just not a cheer session. This is sincerely a challenge to your faith. This life is about building faith muscles in many ways for us to rule and reign with Christ. And there's something that stands before you right now. And God says, will you trust me in my provision and my faith? Will you let my presence lead? And will you respect my presence? That's why Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. What does it mean to consecrate? The Hebrew word for consecrate means to prepare, to dedicate, to be hallowed, to be holy, to be separate or set apart, to come away from those things which are unclean. For the Israelites, that meant that they were supposed to bathe and clothe themselves with clean new clothes. Water was precious, so it wasn't used very often for cleansing. But they were supposed to clean themselves up And they were supposed to get themselves ready, acknowledging who God was, looking out to his presence going ahead. And they were to separate themselves from those things that brought contamination, separate themselves from sin, separate themselves from double-mindedness, separate themselves from anything that was unholy, consecrate themselves. If you're going to cross the Jordan and the presence, one, the presence of God must go before you and you must have faith that that's there. But then right on the heels of that, you need to consecrate yourself. In Isaiah 59, it says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. We have to acknowledge that in our flesh as human beings, whether you're a freshman in high school, a freshman in college, or a freshman in adulting process of life, or maybe a senior citizen, all of us in and of our own sinful flesh carry iniquities that can separate us from God's holy work. And he's acknowledging that. Have you acknowledged that? 2 Corinthians 6.14 says this, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That was always a phrase, and I exhort today when it comes to thinking about a marriage partner, do not be yoked with an unbeliever as you're looking. If you have an unbeliever husband or wife, then God's going to work through that marriage, and you stay in it. But I always remember this verse, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. But it was really the broader concept of those who are not separated, of those who are not pure, who are seeking God. Do not be yoked together with them. doesn't mean that you're not going to be friends with them and hang with them, but watch your lifestyle. Don't get locked up in together with people that are going to lead you into a path that's separate unto God. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what can fellowship What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and the devil? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And then this statement, which is so true today, for we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. God's power and presence is to be within us. 
And then God says this in verse 16, 17. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. If we're to prepare ourselves for a crossing of the Jordan, whether it's in our own crossing as a church family to move from here to there, or you and your personal Jordan, we need to consecrate ourselves to see God work. And consecrate means to separate ourselves from sin. It doesn't mean toy with it or dabble with it. It means get away from it. And we consecrate ourselves to God Almighty, Yahweh. That's who we are devoting ourselves to. Lord, cleanse me. Make me new. Make me whole. I come out to devote my life from this day forward to follow after you. You go back to the other Corinthians in the same chapter, the same verse area, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You familiar with this verse, this concept? Friends, the presence of God is no longer in the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. It was probably destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar took over Jerusalem, crushed and destroyed. But the presence of God is now in the lives of those who are Christ followers. We should consecrate ourselves for every holy day of His ministry because we carry His presence. That's why Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I believe people will be attracted to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ not because we get all cocksure and we think that we're holy and above other people because of what we do or do not do, but because there is the presence of Jesus that dwells in us as we love one another and we consecrate ourselves to separate ourselves from the world to pursue Him. What are you involved in now that you need to come away from to consecrate yourself to God's work to be able to reach your friends and your family members for God Almighty because the presence of God needs to dwell fully in your temple and in my temple for us to make this crossing. So here's my final question to you. It has to do with the verse, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Can you say to the Lord, God, I am wholly yours, From now on, I will not live for myself. I will live for your purposes and for your glory. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we close with a song.